0: This audio program is a ministry of Clear Note Fellowship. For more information, go to clearnotefellowship.org. I was just sitting here remembering that I was here, I guess it was May or June, for graduation uh, last year. And um, I realized what a unique uh, privilege that was because, uh, I guess Stephen and uh, whoever else are the powers that be invited me to speak at commencement, and uh, they didn't ask me to talk about sex. <laughs> I can't remember the last time anybody did that. <laughs> so now I'm in my element. Yeah. So it's you know kind of a little bit of a warning here. Uh, <laughs> Or maybe there should have been a warning when I was here preaching on something that I never preach on. Uh, Anyway, uh, it's good to be back and to see some people that I know and get reacquainted. There's a table over here that has a copy of my book, Undefiled. And uh, if you are a pastor or an elder, the book is free. Uh, And so please stop by and pick up a copy. There, I I understand about 40 of you registered here, and so we've got plenty of books. They're also for sale in the table where all the other books are. They're selling it, and so whatever they want to soak you on... No, no. Whatever they want to charge you for that, um, I'm actually making them a deal and giving them all of my leftover books at at my cost. So they'll sell you one if you're not a pastor uh, or elder. And then also... um, There's a handout for pastors and elders, and uh, it's uh, just a page out of a website, childwelfare.gov, and it talks a little bit about privileged communications. And on the back side, it lists uh, some of the states in terms of what's required of pastors because not all 50 states are the same. And maybe or maybe not you are familiar with what your requirements are from the state that you live in I did a little bit of research online, and it's different in Indiana than it is in Ohio. So uh, this is just kind of to remind you that uh, you need to find out what your responsibilities are. And there are, like in Wisconsin, there are uh, they distinguish between priest uh, and non-priest because of the issue of confessional. Wisconsin has changed its law from what I remember years ago, uh, where all clergy... Uh, had privileged communications and never had to report abuse. That's not not what it is in Wisconsin now. Clergy are mandated to report suspicion of child abuse, sexual abuse or otherwise. And I suspect that's true at least in some of the states that you come from. Priests only in a confessional do not have to report, but in any other pastoral responsibilities, priests are also now required to report. That's Wisconsin, so I'm familiar with Wisconsin. I don't know what it is in Indiana, but you should find out. And so this will give you a little bit of reminder, a little bit of information to do some searching. If you have a, a free access to an attorney or someone who might be able to help you get through the uh, complications of statutes in your state, uh, that might be, uh, might be worth doing. So, It's very interesting, uh, last night... Um, listening to Tim, and uh, he gave a diagnosis, uh, if you noticed. Uh, he diagnosed me. I, uh, I don't remember the last time I was diagnosed. And I found out that my diagnosis is engineer. I got to tell you, I never read that in the diagnostic and statistical manual. I, I don't, I'm going to have to look that up. To see, to see if it's in there, I mean, it's, you know, there's so many different diagnoses, you don't know all of them, so it's possible. Engineer is a diagnosis of a mental disorder, but I, I you know, <laughs> I, I have to check that out. So Tim has gotten to know me a little bit, and so, you know, he's made a diagnosis. You know, we all kind of do that, you know, if we're honest, we diagnose each other. Well, I've diagnosed Tim. And while his is a non-professional diagnosis, you know, coming from, really, an amateur, I, on the other hand, am a licensed mental health provider, and my diagnosis is strictly professional, which means if you want Tim's diagnosis, you have to pay for it. And I, I don't see uh, Mary Lee here, but if let, oh there she is, you get first bid on the diagnosis. <laughs> but I, I'm taking bids, so you know bid high uh, if you want want the diagnosis, and we'll see where it goes. I thought I'd make a little money on the side on this trip. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> Come on, tell her <laughs> the diagnosis. He, he, wants, he wants everybody... To know. See, I can't do that. I'm, I, I have a confidentiality requirement, Tim, and I can't do that. I, you, you can, you know, you can do whatever you want, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I get in trouble, you know. <laughs> anyway, let's get on with the subject, otherwise we're going to run out of time here. Recognizing sexual abuse. I, I want to address the topic uh, kind of broadly in three ways, uh, One, I want to give you a little bit of a history of how the problem has been managed. And I think that will help you understand the importance of managing the problem today. You know, where are we? Where have we been? Um, Second, I want to give you the specific indicators of sexual abuse. In fact, I have a handout for everyone who's here that will give you a list of things that you you can reference. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, but let me ask if all the indicators on this handout were staring you in the face would you address the problem? Would you address the problem? And third, I want to look at it that It's very important to talk about why the problem must be addressed and for us to deal with any reluctance to address the problem when we suspect child abuse. And and you're going to hear me use the word suspect, suspicion a number of times, because that's where it comes at us legally. So it it is not necessarily your job. It is not your job legally. As a member of a church or as a mandated reporter, if you're a school teacher, for example, or uh, you're a pastor and you're mandated to report in your state, it is not your job to determine whether the child has been sexually abused. You're going beyond your bounds. Now, I think it's a good idea to try to really find out, but from a legal standpoint, you're not mandated to make an investigation and determine whether the child or person has been sexually abused or not. Your responsibility, if you're a mandated reporter, is to report suspicion. To report suspicion. You're mandated. As a counselor, I'm mandated to report suspicion of abuse. And particularly, we're talking about, of course, sexual abuse. You know that, as you all know, the... Internet is strangely dangerous in the sense of you can Google it. And so, you know, uh, preparing to speak on this subject, they did some Googling. And I was curious about going back to, as far as best you can, and and I'm not an historian, but, you know, I I can Google it, uh, looking at where things were at in Jesus' day. Uh, What what does the New Testament say, or what was going on in the New Testament period in terms of child abuse? Do we have any kind of information? And I I thought it was a little bit interesting in terms of a biblical, you might say, historical biblical perspective. And what I found, and again, you know, I I qualify this because it's, you know, I don't think Google is, you know, the inspired word of anybody. You know, and anybody can put something on the internet, I suppose. But um, the New Testament world was a very, very different world than the world that we live in today in terms of how children were viewed. What I read is that we believe, scholars believe, historians believe, that infant mortality was extremely high. And that just says a lot about a, a different world. It is estimated that less than half of all children survive to their fifth birthday. Can you imagine a society where that was a reality? And 40% survive to age 20. So, a lot of people died. And think of the children that were lost. It was apparently implicitly condoned to practice infanticide in the Roman Empire. So, that was the state of children in Jesus, roughly Jesus' day. A husband writing to his wife in the first century BC gave this advice and it was not unusual. If you chance bear a child, and it is a boy, let it be. If it is a girl, expose it, meaning leave it unprotected. And apparently the reasoning behind this was in terms of levels of uh, poverty in the Roman Empire, uh, keeping everybody fed, too many mouths to feed, it was just expedient to reduce the population. Uh, and if it was a girl, more likely. Interesting, uh, you know, you think today modern con- uh, contraception is, you know, uh, broadly practiced, readily available. And what was it in that day? And I'm surprised to find that they had anything at all. But apparently writings from medical authorities of the day Uh, Indicate that there were certain herbal preparations as forms of birth control uh, and also to induce abortions. Now, in contrast to the world of that day, Jews were in a kind of a different situation, which is interesting. They did not um, believe in infanticide or abortion, and Jewish writers condemned those practices. So that, that's, that's reassuring. One first century Jewish philosopher wrote, as to the charges of murder in general and murder of their own children in particular, the clearest proofs of their truth are supplied by their parents. Some of them do the deed with their own hand. With monstrous barbarity and cruelty, they stifle and throttle the first breath. The infants that that are born and they throw others into the river or in the depths of the sea after attaching some heavy substance to make them sink more quickly under the weight. I read years and years ago, I was actually doing a research paper on child abuse in my second masters um, at uh, UWM University, Wisconsin, Milwaukee. Swaddling, clo- uh, swaddling clothing, which we, we know how that was used in the New Testament, was to restrain the child and keep them from moving around. And today would be considered child abuse. And of course, Jesus was wrapped in swaddling clothing. I say all that to put it into the context of a passage of Scripture that I'm sure most of you are familiar with, and that is in Matthew chapter 18, if you get the picture of the world that Jesus was born into, the world that Jesus grew up in, and the first, church was, first century church was operating in, it really begins to sound far more radical, what he says in the 18th chapter of Matthew. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, imagine that, become like children in the society that we just briefly described. Unless you become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea, which I never understood that that's what they were doing with children. And he's saying it should be done to the child abuser or the person who does not really treat children properly or protects children in a proper manner when they need to be protected. I think, would be an appropriate implication. So what I read, and there's probably some of you who have more knowledge of history during that period, but children along with women, old men, slaves reviewed as physically weak burdens on society and had little value to the wider life of the community. And again, in the Greece, Greece and Rome, it was an accepted practice to abandon unwanted children often along The roadside to die. However, admonitions against the pagan practices of abortion and child abandonment were found in the earliest Christian writings. It's almost like what's changed from the first century to the 21st century. Sexual abuse is a real problem. Don't ever assume it's not a problem, and it's a problem in the church. Studies suggest that even more children suffer abuse and neglect than is ever reported to child protective service agencies. Statistics indicate girls are more frequently the victims of sexual abuse, but the number of boys is significant. So when you're you're trying to identify, it's like, well, he's a boy, so he wouldn't be sexually abused, you're, you're, you're being misguided in that kind of thinking and think it's only girls who are sexually abused. Yes, more so, but boys are often victims. Statistics vary widely about the level of sexual abuse, but most researchers agree that it occurs at a higher rate than we've previously believed. The statement there that bothers me is we've been saying that for years. That it's higher, that it's higher, that it's higher. And we keep finding out it's higher and it's higher. You wonder when it's gonna kinda level off. More than 85% of adults who were sexually abused say they never reported the abuse. 85% who were sexually abused. So, as a church, as leaders, this means we cannot afford to stick our heads in the sand because it means that it's in our midst, and we cannot ignore the problem. Don't assume that sexual offenders are registered, and that that takes care of all of it. It doesn't. Studies reveal that nearly 25% of sex offenders were non-compliant with registration requirements. So these are people already discovered to be sexual offenders and 25% are not keeping up on their registration. So how accurate is the registration? That means over 100,000 sex offenders across the U.S. don't register or fail to update their location. Now those are only the ones who've been caught. So, again, sexual offender registration is not something that takes care of the problem. Just because we register people, we can't pretend that the problem is being adequately addressed and the people who have the problem are being identified. Just as a simple comparison, raise your hand if you know that breast cancer I mean it's a ridiculous question raise your hand if you know breast cancer exists (laughs) you know and of course 100% of you know that breast cancer exists and we all know about campaigns to have breast cancer awareness particularly if you watch football they're wearing pink you know to to make everybody aware of the problem So I think we're doing a fairly good job. I I assume I'm not an expert on on that problem either, but I think we're doing a fairly good job. There just seems to be a lot of awareness of women having that problem. What I understand is 1 in 8 women, approximately 12%, will develop invasive breast cancer over the course of their lifetime. 1 in 8. So now, here's the real question. How many of you know that children and teens are being sexually abused? And everybody should raise their hand. But does that awareness really exist at the same level? Fact is, one in seven girls will be sexually abused before age 18. That means that 400,000 babies will be born in the US this year and will become victims of childhood sexual abuse. As I prepared this and went through these numbers, I thought, I just hope Google is wrong, that it's not this bad. Of course, it could go the other way, that it's even worse. Then you can ask the question how many of you have a family member with breast cancer or have had a member? who was diagnosed with breast cancer. And of course, I can watch an NFL football game and I'm aware of breast cancer. I have a wife who has a regular mammogram. But I've never had a family member immediate or extended diagnosed with breast cancer. But I think Those of you who have would agree that changes your perspective on breast cancer. If it's you, it's your wife, it's your daughter, a good friend is diagnosed with breast cancer, boy, does that change it. From just simply awareness of the problem to now it's really more personal. Someone you care about is going to be battling with that that horrible disease but how many of you have family members who were sexually abused as a child or a teenager? That's an unfair question in a way because there's probably more secrecy when it comes to sexual abuse in someone's past than whether you had breast cancer. Someone could walk into church on Sunday and say, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Would someone walk into church and say, I was sexually abused? I mean, it's clearly obvious no one's going to do that. So there's more secrecy, of course, around the problem of sexual abuse. So stating that children and teens are sexually abused is simply a factual statement. But when it's somebody you know, your world changes. Being suspicious that a child you know is being sexually abused is going to be harder to ignore, I hope. You wouldn't want someone you know who has breast cancer to ignore it. And I hope if anything comes out of this conference that we increasingly would not want to ignore someone who is being sexually abused. Would you be willing to act? Again, the key word is on the suspicion of sexual abuse in your church or your family. It is so easy to say, well, I don't know for sure. Again, if you look at the mandating requirements of reporting, reporting, Mandated reporting laws in almost all states. Some of you are mandated reporters because of the occupation you're in. If you're a nurse, if you're a school teacher, for example. And in some cases, pastors. Again, check out your, your laws to, so you know whether you're mandated. Uh, there are fines. There are even possibilities of imprisonment. Uh, in our little town of Port Washington, 11,000 people just north of Milwaukee... We have a county newspaper that is published once a week and a child care worker uh, is appealing her legal case for failure to report child sexual abuse because she failed to do it. I think she was working in a daycare center. So, would you be willing to act on suspicion of sexual abuse in your church or your family? If not, why not? Lack of evidence... Fear or ignorance of the dynamics of sexual abuse. So, my job today, as I see it, is to make you more aware, make you, as Tim said last night, more responsible. It's almost like, you know, if you want to not be less responsible, it would be easier to walk out and say, I don't want to know, just leave me in ignorance. So with the handout, other things I'm going to say, all of you are now going to be, I hope, less ignorant, more responsible. Because you'll know the indicators. You'll know what to look for. And that will hopefully guide you, I think, in a proper, compassionate, loving way as as a Christian. When I was working on my master's at UWM, University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, I look back now and see this as the providence of God, but I had four credits that I needed to take to finish the master's degree. Four is an odd number. You know, a lot of courses are three credits. I didn't want to have to take five credits and pay an extra for the extra credit. I could take a three credit, I could take a two credit, but four, there's not too many four credit graduate courses, at least in my experience. So I was talking to my academic advisor saying, how do I not take five or six? And how, you know, how do I just, I just need to get that four so I can graduate? He said, well, why don't you do uh, an independent study project? Uh, and, and, and he said, uh, we can assign any amount of credits for that. He said, but you could do it for four credits. And he said, you know, I would monitor your independent study, and you would write a paper, and, you know, and uh, we would meet and interact. And, that would give you the four credits of independent study. I thought, well, that's a a good deal. And so then the issue was a topic, and I don't know why, I can't remember, this was a long time ago, but I chose the subject of of child abuse as my topic. So I did the reading, I did the research, I did the writing, I wrote the paper, got a good grade, and uh, I wrote all about child abuse. Looked at the history of child abuse. But I never covered the subject of sexual abuse because it wasn't on the radar. I finished that degree in 1979. So between 77 and 79, I could write a paper and get an A and not cover the subject of sexual abuse and the professor thought I did a good job. Today, (laughs) would you get a C for writing that kind of a paper? See the difference just in the span of time of the perception of the problem the history. If you look at the history of child abuse and how it was handled in our country, you can break it down into basically three different errors. The first era is starting from colonial times to 1875. That was the first period. And it's referred to as the period before organized child protection. Child protection was very, very sporadic up until 1875. The second period spans from 1875 to 1962. And in that period, you begin to see the creation of organized child protection through non-government child protection societies. It was not run by the government. Organized child protection actually emerged in New York City from a very well-known story of a nine-year-old girl, Mary Ellen Wilson. She was routinely being beaten and neglected by her guardians. I haven't, what I've read on that, I would suspect, I would suspect sexual abuse, but that's not, in, that's not in the record. Interestingly, a Christian missionary to the poor in New York City, Etta, Etta Weller, Attempted to use the police to intervene to protect Mary Ellen. And the police declined. They said they had no jurisdiction because these were legal guardians of this child. Eventually, Weller was able to rescue Mary Ellen with the help of the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. And the legal case was argued in court that Mary Ellen was an animal of the highest species and deserved protection. And the judge bought it and removed the child from the custody of these guardians. That was the beginning of organized child protection societies in America. And so out of that effort was born the first society for the protection of children, the New York Society of the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. We already had the New York Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. But not children. By 1922, there were over 300 non-government charitable societies devoted to child protection. The Great Depression of the 1930s led to the demise of those non-government societies that could not financially survive. By 1967, there were only ten societies left. The third period of child protection began in 1962 and marks the beginning of government sponsored child protective services. In 1962, there was an article published, The Battered Child Syndrome, and that article played a leading role in bringing child abuse to national attention in the 60s and 70s. In 1974, President Nixon signed into law the Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act, 1974. Now, for some of you, that's a long time ago. For me, (laughs) I was... Roughly 20-some years old. So, I'm growing up in a period uh, that I'm describing here as a child. And that law, passed by President Nixon, included the definition of sexual abuse. So, as a result, there was a growing awareness of the problem, and this led legislators to enact reporting requirements which mandate that any professional person, doctor, nurse, teacher, social worker, counselor, daycare worker, who knows or has reason to believe that a child is being abused, reports the information, needs to report the information to the local welfare agency, Child Protective Services, or to law enforcement. So that was enacted in 1974, mandated reporting of child abuse including sexual abuse. 1974. By 1976 all law, all states had mandated reporting requirements of professionals of sexual abuse. By 1974 there were 60,000 cases of child abuse and neglect. By 1980 there were over 1 million cases. By 1990 2 million By the year 2000, three million cases of child abuse and neglect. Until the 1970s, the prevalence of sexual abuse was seriously underestimated. So that's how I got away with writing that paper and still getting an A. Now, it's interesting in terms of standing in front of you and speaking this morning is where I sort of enter this world, as it were, or this uh, problem. I finished that degree, the master's degree that I mentioned, 1979, and I got my first job as a counselor. I'd done some counseling before as a part of some parachurch Christian ministries that I was involved in, but uh, I had no degree. Uh, I now had a master's degree in psychology and it qualified me for this job. The job description was treatment coordinator for abused children. And I thought, wow, I just finished four credits of independent study, enjoyed writing the paper, learning about child abuse, and here's a job where I could work in that field. So I went down to apply and uh, they interviewed all 30 applicants and I was hired. And I believe to this day the reason I was hired is that I had done four credits of independent study and I knew the subject. Where a comparison, I'm sure, to the other 29 applicants, they didn't know the subject. And I was grilled by three people in an interview process. They just were firing questions at me about child abuse and I was, you know, just rattling off answers like I really knew the subject. Well, I, you know, four credits of independent study I did but no questions about sexual abuse, so I was hired. It was considered the most difficult job in the agency because it involved abused children and their parents. And so I was overlapping for two weeks with the person I was replacing, so we could transition the cases from previous worker to me. And as we're going case by case, all of them child abuse cases, I can still remember this person reaching into the file cabinet, pulling out a file, and she said, this is a different case. And I thought, I think I've seen different. I've seen a baby with a broken ankle and cracked ribs. I've seen other severely abused children. How could anything be more different? And she then said, this is an incest case. And I go, incest? I don't know anything about that. I am absolutely clueless. And she went on to tell me that this 16-year-old girl had reported to her school counselor that she'd been sexually abused by her father since age six. And as a result, the child was brought into juvenile court and in Wisconsin found in need of protection and placed in a foster home. While in a foster home, she shared with her foster parents that her 10-year-old sister had also been sexually abused by dad. In fact, dad had had, had, a, had a threesome with the three of them all having sex together. And so they had brought the second child into the juvenile court to see if she was legally in need of protection. Remember, this is 1979, so almost in some respects in the Dark Ages. And in the middle of this private juvenile hearing, the mother is crying, please don't take my baby. The little girl is crying and saying, please don't take me from my mother. The father had been charged with second degree sexual assault, but was out on parole and he was living at home. And everybody that I ever tell that story to, how in the world could that happen? In 1979, it was not bizarre. And the judge says, I don't want to remove the child if she can be safe and not be sexually abused. I will remove the child if the child is not going to be safe and put her in a foster home as well. We will recess for 30 days, and in 30 days, I want a full report and recommendations on whether it's safe to leave this child in the home with her father and she will not be sexually abused. I am then told you're the person who needs to do that evaluation. You need to write the report. You need to go in and give recommendations on whether this child is safe in the home. I don't know anything about sexual abuse. And I turned to the person I'm replacing, and I said, what would you recommend? And she said, I don't know. This is one of the first cases of sexual abuse I've ever seen in five years. I went to my supervisor. I went to the director. Nobody knew anything. And I was absolutely clueless. There were no books there was no Google. (laughs) How do you know what to do? And I contacted my counterpart in Milwaukee County who had been working with sexually abused children, and he educated me in the process. And I wrote a report, went into court, made recommendations, and so forth. A few weeks later, my supervisor called me and said, there's another child who's been found being sexually abused by her father. The father has been charged criminally, you're going to be involved in a case, you're going to have to coordinate things with the district attorney's office. You don't know the district attorney, let me take you downstairs and introduce him to you. We go down and the actually assistant DA was explaining the case. And my supervisor says, Harry is becoming somewhat of an expert on the subject. I had talked to a guy by the name of George Loiterman in Milwaukee County, and he had told me all the dynamics of, of of incestuous families. And I had explained it to my supervisor. Now, in a way, looking back, that was almost like prophetic. (laughs) Harry's becoming somewhat of an expert. I think I did a double-take and go, what, I've been on the job three weeks. (laughs) But that's how I got into talking about sex. And I'm still doing it, still dealing with it. It's my job, that's all I do. So that's where I entered into this. Those of you who are old enough may remember that by 1980, there was a rash of sexual abuse cases involving a daycare center in California where the employees were charged with sexual abuse and bizarre ritual of animal sacrifices with daycare children. None of those people were ever convicted. And as a result of that, there were another 113 cases involving daycare centers, and child sexual abuse. Again, more of it coming into our awareness. So what is sexual abuse? How would you define it? Sexual abuse is a very general term, and it involves a lot of different behaviors. There are legal definitions, and they would vary somewhat from state to state. They would also, the states would be, Your state would be dictated somewhat by the national child abuse laws, but there can be different definitions. You can basically break down sexual abuse into three layers or three ways. There's touching sexual offenses, all kinds of things involved. Talk about a little in a little bit. There were non-touching sexual offenses. And of course, there's sexual exploitation. Touching Involves touching a child's genitals, penis, testicles, vulva, breast, anus for sexual pleasure or some other unnecessary purpose. Making a child touch someone's genitals or playing sexual games. Putting objects or body parts like fingers, tongue, penis inside the vulva, vagina, in the mouth, in the anus of a child for sexual pleasure or unnecessary I know these aren't pleasant descriptions, but that's what touching involves, and it involves children of all ages, including infants. Non-touching includes showing a child pornography, exposing exposing a child to uh, sexual parts of your body, asking children to interact sexually with one another, online enticement of children for sexual purposes, photographing children in sexual poses, exposing a child to adult sexual activity in person or through the use of technology, watching a child undress or use the bathroom, often without the child's knowledge, known as voyeurism or peeping Tom. Sexual exploitation is an international business. Years ago, I got a letter from a pastor in Sri Lanka, and he said, I met an American who was visiting our country And uh, he told me about your book, False Intimacy. I have no idea who this American American was. And I'm writing to ask you if you can help us. He says, in the culture of Sri Lanka, prepubescent children are sold into prostitution for the sex tourism trade in that country. By the time you reach adolescence, you are no longer of value, and you are discarded, and you are... Cannot return to your family and you live on the street. He said, Both my wife and I were sold into that industry. My entire congregation is made up of men and women who were in that sex tourism trade. Can you help us? What do you do? Counseling different people from different countries, about 20 different countries, it's always fascinating to see how sexual sins and sexual activity can vary from different countries and different cultures. I, I'm a great believer that missionaries really need to be prepared to deal with the sexual realities in the country they're going into. They need to know what is there because it may be very different from this country or, say, another country. Sexual exploitation, very obviously, knowing, producing, possessing a child. Porn for Distribution engaging a child in prostitution or other forms of offering children for sexual services, for compensation, financial or otherwise, knowingly consenting or permitting the child to be exploited. Sexual abuse that was defined in that law that Nixon signed is the employment, use, persuasion, inducement, enticement, coercion of any child to engage in or assist any other person to engage in any sexually explicit conduct or simulation of such conduct for the purpose of producing a visual depiction of such conduct, or or the rape, or and in the case of cases of caretakers or inter-family relationships, statutory rape, molestation, prostitution, or other forms of sexual exploitation of children, or incest with children. Why are we vulnerable? Why is the church vulnerable? If you don't realize it, churches. Are extremely vulnerable to predators. We're uniquely vulnerable. One is, and it's a great thing, in a church there's a certain level of trust. We tend to be trusting and unsuspecting, we tend to ignore the evidence. I think this is changing, but there has historically, and I think there still exists a problem of lack of screening of child and youth workers. I hate the idea that you are gonna hire someone even as an unpaid volunteer and you need to do a background check. What in the world have we come to? Opportunity. A church offers ample opportunity of unsupervised close personal contact between children and adults including overnight activities. Access. Child predators are attracted to churches where they have immediate access to potential victims in an atmosphere of trust, need. Many churches struggle to get adequate help for children and youth programs. In other words, we're vulnerable. Lawsuits against perpetrators in churches by victims of sexual abuse are on the increase. I remember maybe 10 years ago attending a conference in Denver and attending a workshop there with two lawyers, and the one lawyer said, You know, it used to be lawsuits for churches were slipping on the ice and getting injured. This was like at least 10 years ago. He said now lawsuits are for sexual abuse. That was 10 years ago. So churches and church leaders are sued on the basis of negligence in hiring and in supervision. So if you're a church leader, be aware Check with your insurance company to see if your policy excludes damages based on intentional criminal conduct such as sexual abuse. Know what your insurance will cover if you get sued. Coverage may be limited in your policy for sexual abuse or it may be limited if you do not have a written policy of how you are going to handle the problem or the potential problem. So you may want to immediately rush in and have a written policy so that the insurance company will cover any liability. If you don't have the written policy, insurance won't cover you in a lawsuit. Check check that out with your insurance company. Risk factors of sexual abuse. Risk factors in a child's environment and household. All of these help us to try to identify. Settings where secrecy is frequently permitted and encouraged. See that as a dynamic. Significant stress in a family, death, current divorce, job loss, children being viewed or talked about in adult sexual terms, Exposure or an uneasy act or, or easy access to adult pornography, x-rated media or child pornography, witnessing situations where sex is exchanged for money, drugs, privileges or protection, Inc- incidences of unacknowledged child sexual abuse in family history, alcohol abuse, misuse or illegal drug use in the home, domestic violence in the home, repeated exposure to other forms of violence. Settings where there is little or no physical, emotional, or sexual privacy. Risk factors in the child's relationships. Weak or absent ongoing connection, connection to a trusted, safe adult. Sees him or herself as not deserving protection or respect. Child feels emotionally isolated and neglected. Little or no accurate information available about what constitutes healthy, touching, or safe sexual feelings or behaviors. Developmental challenge or disability in a child or other family members. Child is expected to fill the emotional and immediate needs of adults. That's a huge indicator. Child, in terms of incestuous families. Child is a victim of physical or emotional abuse. Now, why is it difficult to report suspected abuse? This goes back to the 70s or late 70s, 80s when I was working in this field. It is often assumed that false reports of child sexual abuse are being made. Fact, that is not true. It is estimated that only 4% of child sexual abuse reports are fabricated. Most fabricated reports are made by adults in custody disputes or by adolescents. Now, let's just say if you had a rebellious, sexually promiscuous teenage girl attending your youth program with unbelieving parents and she told you her stepfather was sexually abusing her, would you believe her? However... If the same rebellious, sexually promiscuous teen grew up in your church, was the daughter of an elder in your church, would you be less likely to believe her? You shouldn't. On what basis would you be less likely to believe? Or if you saw the indicators of sexual abuse in either of those teenagers, would you have the courage to ask the right questions? If not, why not? I can tell you from firsthand experience, sexual abusers don't look like sexual abusers. What do they look like? They look like you. They look like me. When I met that father who sexually abused his 16-year-old daughter for 10 years, I was imagining meeting him and going, oh, yeah, he's a sexual abuser. I could just tell by looking at him. And I met him, and he was just a nice guy. I literally went home to my wife and said, I met, I met my first sexual abuser, and he looks normal. It, it, it literally took me back. And they look normal. They look like, like, they look like us. Sexual abusers don't look like sexual abusers. They are fathers. They are mothers. They are step-parents. They are grandparents. They are other family members. And they include juveniles. They can be neighbors, babysitters, clergy, teachers, coaches, anyone who has close contact with children. So the challenge is sexual abusers abusers like children. They are good with children. They want to minister to children. Now, you don't go around, well, if you want to minister to children, you're, you're a child predator. That's not what I'm saying, but how do you identify? It's a challenge. To protect children, parents have relied on the maxim, stranger danger. 60% are family members. Father, daughter, incest is a huge problem. 30% are family, friends, caretakers, and neighbors. And only 10% are strangers. So it's not the guy who's lurking around the school playground. I I remember, I think it was in grade school, they were like, you know, don't take candy from anybody on the playground, any stranger. Well, that that really wasn't the threat. The threat maybe was more with the teacher who was teaching it, if you you look at the statistics. Common misconceptions about sexual crimes, the lie, sexual predators are antisocial. The truth is sexual offenders are often charismatic, sociable people who are easy to like and trust. The lie is sexual offenders are always adults. The truth is that 40% of offenders who victimize kids are minors themselves. The lie, sex crime only happens in the middle of the night. The truth is young children are most often victims of sexual assault around mealtime. 8 a.m., noon, and 6 p.m. Again, predators appear to be good people. Most sexual abusers are not strangers, but family members or someone close to the family. And again, this is on over 30 years of experience. And it ought to be logical, but I hear this all the time. Viewing pornography does not lead to child sexual abuse as a direct correlation. I don't care what James Dobson said when he interviewed Ted Bundy, and he said, it's oh, it's all about pornography, Dr. Dobson. I mean, I've had couples that I've counseled who were dealing with pornography. Their marriage went to divorce. I get a letter from an attorney. They want my records because they want to control the custody of the children based upon the idea that the father is a predator because he viewed pornography. You ought to fire the attorney. Do child predators look at pornography? Maybe. Now, if you're looking at child pornography, that that changes things quite a bit. Then Then I think there's a lot more risk. All those who commit sexual offenses against minors are often described as pedophiles, predators, and thought of as adults. It's important to understand that a substantial portion of these Offenses are committed by other minors who do not fit the image of those terms. Youth constitute more than one in four sexual offenders that juveniles perpetrate more than one in three sexual offenses against other youth. One in seven incidences of sexual abuse perpetrated by juveniles occur on school days by the way I think I've implied this but if you're a school teacher wouldn't matter if you're in a private Christian school if you're a school teacher administrator I am quite sure you are mandated to report suspicion suspicion it's not your job to figure out if the child was abused in terms of the law that's not saying you shouldn't try to find out but your job is to report suspicion Juveniles who commit sexual offenses against other children are more likely than adult sexual offenders to offend in groups, at school, and to have more male victims and younger victims. The number of youth coming to the attention of police for sexual offenses increases sharply at age 12 and plateaus at age 14. Early adolescence is the peak age for offenses against younger children. Offenses against teenagers surge during Middle to late adolescence, while offenses against victims under age 12 decline. Small number of juvenile offenders, one out of eight, are younger than 12. Females are found more frequently among younger youth than older youth who commit sexual offenses. Again, jurisdictions will vary widely, so it's it's really incumbent upon you to check out the laws in your state. Again, it's not just girls who are at risk. One in 25 boys will be sexually abused before they turn 18. Do I have until 11? Is that right? You have a handout, so I want to just go there quickly. I won't go through it uh, and list everything in there. I think it's a very, very good Help in terms of warning signs that might suggest someone is sexually abusing a child. And there's the there's two sides to it. There's a tip sheet, warning signs of possible sexual abuse in the child's behavior. So these are some very specific indicators that uh, you need to make yourself aware of. You need to, in my opinion, make your Sunday school teachers aware of, your youth workers aware of, so that everybody's aware. Again because we really need to follow Jesus' admonition to be very concerned about children. That would be the first level of responsibility, uh, even though we end up also with some real legal concerns in terms of potential lawsuits. Uh, if, we do not, or if we are not actively engaged in preventing, and so simply to make your teachers, your staff, aware of these indicators, you know, photocopy these things, hand them out, you know, maybe you need to post it on a bulletin board, I don't know, so it's like we take this problem seriously, and then you're not going to be open to to negligence in terms of hiring and supervision so that you're protecting yourself um, from from that type of problem, which we obviously realize is a problem. Again, mandated reporting, I don't know the law in your state. You have that handout, um, or excuse me, the handout that is on the table where you can get the free book if you're a pastor or elder, Uh, Pastor Elder, take the handout on privileged communications and find out in your state whether you are mandated to report. Uh, Again, years ago, clergy were totally exempt from reporting, so if you're operating in the old days and still thinking you're exempt, the law may have changed in your state. You may not be aware of it. You need to find out if you're a mandated reporter of suspicion of child abuse or sexual abuse so that you know where you stand. Uh, I I do think... uh, it, it's important for pastors, people who are on the staff of the church to not be going around paranoid and thinking, is a person being abused? Is a person not being abused? I don't want people to become a paranoid. I, I, I guess in one way, I'm not really concerned about that. I'm more concerned that we are proactive. Uh, we are checking things out. Uh, and uh, particularly if you're in a church that has a staff, you really need to know who your staff are uh, and what's going on in their lives, what are their issues, what, you know, what's happening. Uh, we just got to get a lot more involved, and that takes uh, awareness of who we're working with. Uh, it takes awareness of the people around us observing uh, the dynamics. Uh, again, this is not ironclad, but as a marriage and family therapist, uh, if you look at what's called structural family therapy, what a structural family therapist will actually do, and, and we're trained to counsel whole families. Uh, so we're we not just trained to counsel adults. Uh, I recently took some uh, updating on my training, and I was coloring all day. It was really a thrill, you know. Uh, old guy, I, I texted my wife, and I said, you won't believe what I'm doing. She said, what are you doing? I said, I'm playing with crayons. Uh, it, it sounds a little absurd because I don't counsel children, but I'm ca- trained to counsel children and, and how to use crayons and drawings and things to to work with the child in in terms of child therapy. So if you're a structural, it's a different theory, but a structural family therapist, what you do is you set up a room with chairs. All the chairs are like in a circle. They're all equally spread uh, apart. They're not set up with two chairs over here and three chairs over there. And you let the family walk into the room before you walk into the room. And what I was trained years ago to observe is where does the oldest daughter sit and if the older, oldest daughter, say she's 16, sits next to her father, and the mother sits over with the three younger children on the other side of the room, and it could be, you know, she just wants to control the, the restless child, and there's nothing to it. But as a structural family therapist, that's a first indicator of an incestuous family. Now, you don't know anything, and you can't make wrong assumptions, you can't make false accusations obviously and you don't go reporting that the child to protect the services but I'm asking questions and I'm looking for other indicators and typically in an incestuous family when you have a child as old as 16, you will see that girl replacing the mother in the family dynamics not just in the sexual relationship so she's cooking she's cleaning, she's Caring for the children, and it's like the mother is more like the 16 year old daughter, in effect. Again, that's just a rough indicator in my mind as a trained person. If I see that, my radar intensity goes up, I'm starting to track what's going on. So, I'm just giving you that as a, a kind of a rough idea that when you see something, you know don't start talking about it, don't gossip about it, you know, try to find out more of what's going on in the situation, and don't assume because the person is an elder, pastor, or whatever they are, but, well, it's not them, you know, Uh, we have to, and again, I I don't want to create paranoia, but I I really, really, having worked in this area for so long and starting my career working with abused children, I have deep, deep compassion for the subject uh, and the, and the need and i've counseled i've counseled uh, some predators over the years and so uh you know some of them i would like to just put a bullet right here you know and just you know uh kill them but you know there are people who need christ there are people who need their lives transformed and i know there's there's some further discussion that we're going to be having during this conference about ministering to to predators and I, i'm glad that's included and uh, look forward to that thank you very much i think my time is up This has been a production of Clearnote Press. Please feel free to share this recording with others, but do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more resources like this, go to clearnotefellowship.org.